This episode of this podcast is making me thirsty is brought to you by Schnitzer's Bakery. We have cinnamon babka and chocolate babka. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty, the number one destination for Seinfeld fans. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at This Thirsty. Follow us on Instagram at This Thirsty. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. This podcast is making me thirsty. Join our Patreon, patreon.com backslash Seinfeld podcast. Bonus episodes up there. Our first 16 episodes are up there. All kinds of good stuff. Join now, folks. Go to our website, SeinfeldPodcast.com. Our rankings are there. All of our episodes are there. Lots of good stuff. Email us at this podcast is making me thirsty at gmail.com. If you dig it, please pass it on. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy. This podcast is making me thirsty. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This is episode 147. Today's guest is a prolific stand-up comedian, actor, and writer. He's toured all over the country and the world for more than 45 years. You know him from Jub App, Jub App, Judd Apatow's Funny People, Two Stupid Dogs, and Blue Collar TV. He's appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Late Show with David Letterman multiple times. He has comedy specials on HBO and Showtime. He co-hosts the popular podcast, You Don't Know Schiff, with Lowell Benjamin. He co-edited the acclaimed book, I Killed Two Stories of the Road, from America's Top Comics. And, of course, his new book, with a forward by Jerry Seinfeld, Why Not? Lessons on Comedy, Courage, and Chutzpah is available now wherever you buy books. Please welcome Mark Schiff. Mark, thanks for joining. Thank you. And I, I could tell by the way you said the uh, the last word there that you're not a member of the Jewish tribe. No, said, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I could tell you said chutzpah. It's, you got to get the phlegm there, Tony. It's chutzpah. Give me a shot at it. Come on, let's try chutzpah. chutzpah. All right, that's passed. That's, you're, you passed. <laughs> now we'll just circumcise you and you're in. <laughs> uh, I'll pass on that one, Mark. But uh, pleasure to have you on the program. Obviously, this is the number one destination for Seinfeld fans. And let's be honest, Jerry Seinfeld is not Jerry Seinfeld without Mark Schiff and that friendship. So take us back, Mark. 1976, you first laid laid eyes upon Jerry Seinfeld. Tell us a little bit about how you met him uh, and how the friendship came to be. Sure. So I started in comedy in around 1976. And I started the improv. I auditioned there 17 weeks in a row. And I finally got through the door there, which meant that I could stand around for the next two years without getting on. And then um, the comic strip uptown started a club. They, and uh, I went up there one day. I heard there was a club opening called the comic strip. And they did not even have a flooring yet. It was just dirt. And we went in and we auditioned for Richie Tinkin. Uh, standing in a pile of dirt while he sat in a chair. And uh, he passed me the audition. And they said they're going to open the club in a couple of months, whenever it was. And uh, that's where I met a lot of my friends that I'm still friends with today. And one of them is Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry and I met in 1976. We kind of you know gravitated to each other. We became friends. And um, neither one of us had ever done stand-up really before. Um, 
And uh, night after night, we just showed up at the clubs, and there he was, there I was, there was Paul Reiser, there was, you know, Gilbert Gottfried, Larry Miller, George Wallace. They were all there every single night. And uh, I was working when I first got there. Um, I didn't actually have a real job. I, I, I was writing in, but Jerry was working at Burger Brew. It's a waiter, I believe it was. And he also sold jewelry on the street, make a couple of bucks. And, uh, you know, he would ride over on his little like, moped motorcycle, like a, you know, like a 175, I think it was, across town. He lived in a, a little studio apartment. And, I, and we hung out every night. And I would go in and watch him every night. He would come out and, you know, come in and watch me. And then we'd go watch Riser. And that was it. We'd get on stage for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the most. And um, then we sit at the bar for hours and go over material. And then at the end of the night, after we went to the Catch a Rising Star, where we probably did not get on, we'd go over a place called the Green Kitchen. Get there around 2 30, 3 o'clock in the morning, and fresh donuts and cookies were being made in the ovens there. And we took a booth, just not unsimilar to the show Seinfeld, you know, and we crammed a whole bunch of us in a booth every night and we just hung out till 4 or 5 in the morning. Green Kitchen was open 24 hours a day. People said, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Why do, why do they even need a front door? <laughs> you know, if you never close, save a couple of bucks on a door. And we would hang out, and then we'd be in one booth, and then Carol Leifer would come in with um, Kathy Ladman, and they'd pile in another booth. And before you know it, there were cab drivers and comedians in there. Cabbies would park out front, and they'd have a little lunch, a place to go to the bathroom, a little dinner, whatever they were doing. And then we'd just hang out. We all taped our acts, and we would sometimes play a little new bit that we did uh, for each other and go over it. So that's how it all started. And when you're thrown into close quarters like that with somebody, um, there's a good chance you might become friends. So, you know, starting in comedy was like starting in nursery school or mm -hmm. kindergarten. Now, you, you made some friends and then you went through school with them. And that's what it was. This was our education. Yeah, that, that scene you just described, you actually detail that in your book, too, when you're kind of talking about the life of a comedian and how that's your your world, that nighttime world, that 3 a.m. in the diner that you mentioned, that whole, you know, that, that when, when the city kind of comes alive and you guys are telling your stories right. and, and the cab drivers are there and stuff. That I mean, it, 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 it it's funny because it sounds, you know glamorous but obviously it's not right you guys are all starting out like you said but it, but it's it's what you know and it's you know and you, you have to come to love that to make it through uh, a comedy career especially for 45 years so um you know it's great to hear you kind of talk about that how how you all kind of meet there and you're all telling stories and sharing uh and, and you're in it together right and then so it's interesting to me that that world because you're all in it together then and then you know, a, a Jerry might pop here or a Leno might pop there or a Larry Miller might pop or Paul Reiser. You know, like as that happens, you guys are all still friends and all with each other the whole way up. Uh, it's interesting to kind of see that um, and how those friendships, like you said, are still, you know, lasting to this day. And, and, and maybe you could touch on that is, is as your careers progressed, maybe like what that was like from, from, you know, your perspective and, and, and working with, with those, with those guys as far as, uh, sure. as you kind of move through. Sure. Well, 
You know, it's funny. The word glamorous, uh, look, we weren't at Caesar's Palace. <laughs> right, right. You know, but the dream was to just get funny. Right. See, Jerry never planned to get a show. Riser didn't plan to get a show. Nobody planned anything. There were no clubs across the country that worked. There was no work for us when we first started. There was the Catskill Mountains, some nightclubs across the country, which we didn't think we would ever be right for. And we just, uh, the guys I mentioned, like Riser, Seinfeld, myself, Gilbert Gottfried, the only thing we wanted to do was to become as funny as we could possibly become. That was that was the deal. And um, it wasn't cutthroat. L.A. was kind of cutthroat. You know, there was, there was a lot more drugs and booze out there, and people drinking and doing stuff. None of us, uh, that, that wasn't a big part of the thing. We didn't go out after the thing and start snorting things and smoking things. Never one night of that. And other people did it at the clubs, and we were very supportive of each other. I was happy when uh, Jerry would grab a new bit. We also had a code back then. There weren't that many comedians. You know, there weren't a lot. We were, we were in this generation coming up. Robert Klein was already out. Elaine Boozler was out. This guy, Andy Kaufman, was, was, was gone. And they were the generation before us. We, we would watch them every night. Bobby Kelton, Andy Kaufman, Elaine Boozler. It was amazing. There was a very supportive uh, group that I had coming up. Nobody uh, wished harm on anybody, and we didn't. So, like, let's say Jerry is doing a routine on, I don't know, you know, vacuum and cleaning, you know, <laughs> using a vacuum. And I had a routine on using a vacuum that I had been doing for four months before he started it. I could say to him, you know, Jerry, I do that. I do something very similar, and he would drop the routine. That, that, was, that was the code. That if you said to somebody, you know, I, I've been doing that. When did you start? They go, I just started that two weeks ago. I've been doing it for four months. You can ask Silver at the Improv or Richie. And they would go, okay, I'm not going to do it. Hmm. And if you were considered a joke thief, there's a good chance you wouldn't get in this little club. Interesting. So, I mean, competitive business, I suppose, but it sounds like it's kind of a a fraternity, a family. Uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, you know, uh, Green Kitchen. Did you guys write together? Like you mentioned the vacuum cleaner thing. Like, hey, Jerry, you know, I did it this way, and or if you were going to take it, you take it in this direction. Would any of that happen? Like, you know, at yeah. Jerry's studio and things like that. Uh, his little apartment that he lived with George Wallison. Yeah, <laughs> he had a tiny little apartment. I think it was a fifth floor walk up. Um. Probably one hundred fifty dollars a month. I don't know what it was, but it surely wasn't over. I don't think two hundred. And um, we didn't go back to his house to write, but uh, we would uh, sit in the clubs. And uh, if he had a routine, or just like things pop in my head when I'm writing something, like when I watch Jerry or Riser, something will pop in my. Head. I always have a piece of paper and a pen, and I'll write down the notes. And then after, I'll go, "Hey, listen, I got this idea. You like it? You got this. Use this. Put this. You know." And we uh, fix up the routines, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, we give it a shot because we're all different. Every comedian is completely different than the other one. So we're not worried about anything. And uh, Jerry started making money when they started asking him to MC at the comic strip. Mm. I think it was maybe 50 bucks a night or something, so that was paying his rent. 
I yeah, had I a mean, I had a three bedroom apartment. Uh, me and another, uh, my friend John and, and myself. It was three hundred fifty a month, three bedrooms, and we got a third roommate and we charged him three hundred. So my rent to live in Manhattan was twenty five dollars a month for five years. Wow, and that's that's what put me through comedy, my comedy college type of thing. You know that I can go to the clubs every night without having to get a day job. Right, right. Yeah, that's huge. And, and and one of the stories I loved in the book was uh was when when you and Jerry during that time when you really you know scraping by like you said you know hundred bucks here fifty bucks there and and you drove out to see uh, Rodney Dangerfield and uh, and the two of you kind of uh, finagled your way into into meeting him after the show. Um, just a great story. Just curious, like you know th- those those kind of trips. I'm sure there's some bonding going on, like you said, and just late night talks and things. Um, maybe you could touch on just what, what, what that was like, the, the drive maybe that, sure. that, that maybe, you know. So there were, there were two drives. One was the first road gig we ever had that I ever had and Jerry ever had, we took together to Washington DC in my 1976 Toyota Corolla. And, uh, I turned Jerry on to Frank Sinatra. He had never really heard much Frank Sinatra. I had my eight track player in the car. I put on Sinatra Live at the Sands. So we listened to that all the way down to uh, Washington, D.C., where we worked at a place called Garvin's Grill. And uh, that was that was our first road gig together. We stayed at a place called the Shoreham Americana. We had each had our own hotel room. Could you imagine? It was unbelievable. It wasn't a comedy condo. It was a hotel room just for me alone and him. It was amazing. And uh, the ride out to Rodney was we already had moved to California and Jerry was living out there and he had a little Fiat and there's another comedian named Steve Middleman, an incredibly funny guy. So I said to Jerry, you know, Rodney's in Vegas. Why don't we go? And he said, yeah, we'll take me. And we took his Fiat and we drove from LA to Vegas. And then when we got there, we realized we we had no money. You know, you don't go to Vegas with nothing. So we went to the to the theater where Rodney was playing, and we went up to the uh, the maitre d guy in a tuxedo. And there we are, three guys. And he said, "Can I help you?" And he go, "Yeah." We said, "We're friends with Rodney," which we weren't. We we had seen him come into Catch a Rising Star a couple of times working on Tonight Show sets. And he goes, "Are you friends with Rodney?" I said, "Yeah, we're comedians." He goes, uh, "So what do you want?" I said, "We like to come see the show." told us to pop by which he never told us (laughs) so he said let me go talk to him and he goes talks to rodney and he and we're all sweating it out there you know we have no idea what he's going to come back and say and the guy goes uh rodney said okay uh come on in you got us a booth we didn't have any money to tip the guy which you're supposed to do when you get a booth in vegas especially you know right in the middle in the center and he goes so rodney wants to see you guys after the show so we saw rodney he was unbelievable we all agree that Rodney was probably the best Tonight Show comedian that ever lived. He was absolutely perfect for the Tonight Show. And uh, after the show, we go back to see Rodney. And he's looking at us, goes, you know, he has no idea. Like, what do you got? What's going on here, man? <laughs> so we said, we'll catch a rising star. We met you there. All right. And then he goes, so he just accepted that. And then he goes, come on, I'll take you out to dinner. And uh, we, we go to this uh, deli. No, we go to a Chinese restaurant 
And Rodney, uh, the waiter comes over and says, uh, okay, Mr. Dangerfield, uh, what would you like? And Rodney goes, I want to start with some matzo ball soup. We're in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and he orders matzo ball soup. This is just absolutely hysterical. So the waiter goes, okay. Obviously, he'd done this before. The waiter goes out of the Jewish deli next door to the Chinese, or the Chinese waiter goes out and goes to the deli, which is next door. And gets matzo ball soup and brings it back into the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> so they give Rodney uh, matzo ball soup. And then we all ate. And Rodney goes, uh, where are you guys staying tonight? And we said, oh, we're, we're going back. How come? We don't have any money. And Rodney lost his money. He goes, how the, uh, how the F could you come out to Vegas with no money? What is out of, you're out of your freaking minds. So he said, uh, I'll tell you what. If you want, I have, a, I have an extra room. My manager. I get a room for me and one for my manager. I'll give you my manager's room. And then he says, whatever you do, don't screw me on the phone calls, long distance calls. <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted to make sure we weren't going to call like New York or, you know, start dialing and stick them with, you know, some $300 phone bill. The guy's headlining it, you know, in Vegas and he's worried about, you know, a $40 phone bill. So that was our, our experience with Rodney there. I have a, another Rodney story, which you want to hear it? That's, yeah. I mean, that, that one's, a, I mean, Rodney must have been so a good. A big influence for you, I imagine. I mean, with all your Tonight Show work and the whole thing, right? He was amazing. Rodney was so kind to all of us and so great. Uh, watching him on Tonight Show. He used to come into the clubs and and break into Tonight Show. But the first money I ever made writing, I sold a joke to Rodney. 25 bucks. And the joke was, I'll tell you, you know you're getting old. I went to the cemetery to visit my father and two guys chased me with shovels. That was, the, and he killed with it on Tonight Show. But he also was an honest guy. He said, "Are you sure you wrote this yourself? You didn't hear somebody else do it. You didn't steal it." He wanted to make sure that it was an original joke. So, Rodney was on the Tonight Show when it was like not an hour. He was on when it was an hour and a half. And comedians later on in the one-hour version, we would do five minutes standing. And maybe two or three minutes sitting down. When Rodney did, it was like 15 minutes. They would do like nine minutes, eight minutes standing. And then like six, seven minutes. You know how many jokes that is for Rodney? One-liners? <laughs> so I said to Rodney one time, you know, we'd like to see some of your old Tonight Shows. Because you couldn't get them. There was no YouTube. And he said, come up to my house on the east side when you and Jerry are in town. And uh, I'll show them to you. So one time, Jerry and I are in town. And I said, let's call Rodney go up to his house. Call him up. He says, come on up. We go up. And so Rodney is famous. You've heard this. But wearing bathrobes. You've yeah. heard this, right? Yeah. I Always with that. the bathrobe. Yeah. So I said to Jerry, I guarantee you he's going to answer the door wearing a bathrobe. And Jerry goes, no, there's no way. You know, he's having company come over. Who wears a bathrobe? He's going to be dressed. I said, no, I'll bet. And we bet a dollar. I bet Jerry a dollar. And we even shook on it. You know, you know the way you shake when you I bet your dollar, man. Rodney opens the door. He's in a bathroom. And we both start laughing. I said to Jerry, you owe me a dollar. And Rodney goes, what's so funny? I go, well, we made a bet that I said you're going to wear a bathroom. And Rodney takes us into the bedroom, opens his closet door. He has over 100 bathrooms. <laughs> he had the greatest. He, and he starts talking about him like they're great works of art. He goes, this is one I got in France, in Paris, France. I got this one on the east side about two years ago. This was a present from the queen. You know, it was just... And in the house with him was Joe Ansis. You know that name? 
Joe Ansis was Lenny Bruce's best friend in the world. Wow. And Rodney's best friend. And some people thought that Joe Ansis like, was one of the funniest guys, but never had the, the nuggets to get up on stage himself. So we went up there, and Joe was smoking some weed. Rodney was smoking some weed. And we sat down, and uh, we didn't smoke with him, but we watched a couple of Tonight Shows with him and had a great time. Wow. And I, I, I won a dollar from Jerry. <laughs> and you owe it all to just kind of having the, the chutzpah, if you will, of uh, just sneaking in and telling people that you knew him. Incredible. So uh, just go, and then I guess, I don't know what year that was, but let's, let's fast forward to, to 1989, let's say 88, uh, when the whole Seinfeld phenomenon started. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned a bunch of comedians. One of the names I didn't hear was Larry David. So sure, NBC came to Jerry, you know, obviously George Shapiro put in a good word, the whole thing. And then obviously Jerry met up with, with Larry and kind of partnered with him. Curious how that whole thing came about. Um, obviously, there was a big group of friends. Um, just curious what, what Jerry told you about how that whole thing started, how, you know, his friendship with Larry. Sure. Um, you know, yeah, to your point, we hear about Wallace, Larry Miller, you, of course, Riser. Uh, we hear about Larry David now, but just curious back then, 88, 89, how that whole thing came about. So when we first started, Larry was there every night. At the improv, little catch a rising star never really came over to the comic strip. He was mostly catch a rising star, a little bit, mostly the improv. That's where he spent his time, and that's where, if you you know everything they said about Larry was probably pretty much true. He never knew what he was going to do on stage. He would go on, and if he after one or two jokes he didn't like the audience, he dropped the mic and walk off, and the next guy had to recover from that, or he would uh, do a set. And um, he had some classic, classic routines, but he was, uh, you know, a, a bit of a testy guy. I remember going up to his house, and the, uh, he is he, he in the, uh, the towers there in the 40s, yeah. you know, where all the actors and comedians lived, and he yeah, was yeah. writing some scripts at the time. So we all became friends, Larry, Jerry, Riser. But uh, what happened, the way I seem to understand some of it is that, you know, Jerry was on a Tonight Show a lot, and there were no offers yet. You know, he was on many, many times, a couple of dozen times, and uh, George had to call the, you know, NBC and say, "Listen, what about this guy?" You know, he said, and you know, they weren't so hip to it. You know, they didn't really know. You know, I mean, so George spoke to them, and uh, they said, "Okay, let's uh, let's do something here." They went back and watched the shows and, and uh, learned a lot about Jerry. And I'm sure Jerry went into a meeting there. He's a very uh, amicable guy, you know, and, you know, he's clearly funny on and off stage. And uh, they made the deal, you know, for uh, and him and Larry got together. And it was the Seinfeld Chronicles, which, you know, that was the original name. And uh, first season, not so good, right? Had a lot of people watching. And uh, Jerry even got a letter from NBC that uh, they weren't so sure with these, about these unlikable characters. You know, generally TV is likable people. You know, not people, you know, who are so selfish and self-centered like the characters on the show. But um, it built and built and built the show. And uh, 
boy, did it take on a life of its own. It became the arguably the best sitcom ever. Yeah, we're uh, we're still talking about it today. Any um, any stories that obviously you're probably a big fan of the show as well. Any stories you remember from the actual show that were about you or about you and Jerry and an experience? Obviously, uh, Jerry tied a lot of tied a lot of experiences into the actual sitcom. Any any of yours that that popped that that you recall? So Jerry used to call me periodically. Um, I'm I'm known as a uh, numbers expert. Mm. Like when you need a funny number, <laughs> there, are, there are numbers that are funny and there are numbers not so funny. Yeah. So when they'd be working on a script and they need a funny number, I'd be the nine one one call, and Jerry would call and listen. We need uh, something, and he'd tell me the joke. I go one hundred eighty seven. You know, whatever it was, and it was always perfect. Um, sometimes we talked about fixing up a little, a little something there. We discussed early on the strength of him doing the stand-up in the beginning. Yeah. First MA seasons, was it three seasons? And that, it was a, uh, that was hard. You know, writing new stand-up every week and doing it in front of a live audience. And uh, But what it did for Jerry, I believe, and because there are other comedians who got shows, but people didn't really know they were a stand-up. Jerry accomplished that. It was brilliant. He was an actor. The show was, has his name, and everybody knew he was a stand-up. So when the show eventually ended, or even during the show, he did a couple of runs, and we went all over the world together, you know, and did some shows together. People knew. They put out Jerry Simon. They said, he's a comedian. Let's go see him. He's great. So th that really took on a life of its own. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. One time I, I went to the studio to watch an episode and to have lunch with Jerry. Called him up. I said, let's have lunch. And I, I went to uh, CBS Radford. And I pull into the lot with my 76 Toyota Corolla. And I parked next to his probably $250,000 Porsche. And I, <laughs> Jerry, Jerry comes out. And I said, you know, I, I, I've never driven you know, one of these Porsche things, you know? And he goes, you want to? I said, yeah. He goes, well, here's the keys. Give me your keys. I'll take your Toyota tonight and you take the Porsche. Uh, and that was the last time you saw Jerry driving a 1976 Toyota Corolla. I guarantee <laughs> you that with a dented passenger side door. In fact, it was a different color door. The car was brown and I had a yellow door. I went to a junkyard and had a, I needed a door. And they put on a yellow door. And there's Jerry driving around, star of Seinfeld in a 1976 Toyota with a yellow door. And he gave me his Porsche. To tell you that I was scared to drive this $200,000 car would be, I was afraid if I, you know, I just pictured myself coming back, just handing him a steering wheel, going, I'm really sorry about this. This is all that's left of this car. Because, you know, if you're not used to driving those cars, you know, they, they, you got to learn what to do. But he was kind enough to give me and uh, loan me that car. Also, um, we had a, a moment when his, his father passed on. I had heard and I called him up. And I went to his house and we said he was living in uh, an apartment house called North Sher Sherborne. And he hadn't had the show yet. He hadn't done the show. And we sat on his uh, little stairs like you do in New York on a stoop. And we talked about his dad. And then I had the uh, honor to drive him to the airport to go back to New York you know, to with the family. So we were, we were close, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together then and we spent a lot of time together now.
Yeah, it's, I mean, this is, you could tell the friendship is is there, and and just you know, uh, just from reading your book too, like, there's definitely some stories. That I don't want to give too many of them away. I want people to go get it, but uh, well, the, you saw um, the forward, right? You saw the yes. forward. You saw what he wrote. Yep, it was exactly. It makes me cry almost. You know, he I says, know. "I'm the Imagine. best comedy pal you could go through this with. He wouldn't want to go through it without me." When I read, when he wrote that and sent it to me, I, I stopped in my tracks. You know, one of the greatest things is to be able to sit with Jerry or Paul or some of these guys, Leno. These are masters. And to be able to sit and work routines with them and have their respect for your comedy. I mean, you know, people would you would love to do that. And I, I feel very, I have tremendous gratitude. Yeah, and I would imagine, and just from reading your book, it, it seems like you have, I, I don't know if you, if you ever thought about like, being almost like there's a lot of wisdom in it is what I'm trying to say. It's almost like like a rabbi almost in a way. Like you have these these one liners like the never be afraid to ask. You might just receive right how you met Bob Dylan or the find people who believe in you. Right, Jerry obviously did that with 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 George Pirro, Rick Ludwin, and, and and you and his other colleagues. But um, I would imagine that some of these conversations you're having with these guys, these these Lenos and these 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 Seinfelds who you know they're at the top or whatever of their field, but they need to be grounded. They probably need advice. They probably need someone to talk to and just mm -hmm. that kind of talk outside of comedy. I'm guessing they, they, they kind of le leaned on you for that too as well. Yeah. It comes across in the book, my book, Why Not? Um, you know, it's funny you said rabbi. There's a lot of Jewish stuff in the book too. And I had a rabbi that um, I would clear the stuff with to make sure it was accurate. Because of myself, even though I've, you know, I go to synagogue and I am, you know, practicing Jew, um, I had to make sure. But yes, um, we, we, Jerry and I, we talk about marriage, we talk about raising kids, and uh, we have each other to, to, to bounce these things off. Because I'm married 33 years, Jerry's married, I think, like 25, Riser. You know, our group, it's interesting enough Larry Miller, Paul Riser, Jerry Seinfeld, myself, we're all married, and we've all stayed married to the same person. There's been no divorces. There's been no, you know, newspaper stuff about this one doing this and that one doing that. It's all been very clean living, and it's it's a beautiful thing. That's never been, you know, on the radar. When I'm out with Jerry on a tour, this is probably the most conservative tour you can ever imagine. We do our shows. We have some lunch, we have dinner, we go to the movies together, and uh, that's, and we, and at the end of the night, we go back and uh, goes back to his room, I go back to my room, and then in the morning, we meet at his room for breakfast and with uh, Kevin Docterman, who's the producer of the show, and Rob Prince, and uh, it's, it's incredible. It's funny, it's funny you mention that, Mark. Uh, we noticed that on the Seinfeld show as well, when, when there's a party, <clears throat> Jerry has like Pepsi and chips. There's nothing, you know, outlandish and <laughs> crazy yeah. going on. Um, so that's he. That he's true to who he is, whether it's on a show or off. It sounds like was. So did you? Did you ever visit? Did you visit the set? I know he called you a bunch of times for advice. Did, yeah. did you ever go on set? You meet Kramer and Julia and sure. And sure I'll send and you he, some pictures. Oh, I awesome! Threw, I threw Jerry's fortieth um, birthday party, and we had. Michael Richards there, and we had uh, um, Elaine and George and Mario Joyner and myself and Paul Reiser and Leno 
threw this party in an Italian restaurant. In fact, we went to this one restaurant. It was almost like a Seinfeld routine uh, uh, show. We went to this one restaurant, 10 or 12, 10 of us walk in and they go, uh, be an hour to see you. So we all leave and then we go to another restaurant together. Uh, so that, that was, uh, yeah, we spent time together. I went to Vegas to see Hiram Kasson, who you had on the show. He was in a show called The Rat Pack. And I went with uh, Jerry and Larry Miller and Paul Reiser and uh, Michael from the show. We all went to see Hiram in the, uh, the Rat Pack. And then we went out to dinner and Steve Wynn comes over the table, says hello and buys us all. Picks up a $3,000 dinner check. Not uh, bad. Not bad. <laughs> well, I, 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 I can picture Hiram just, you know, throwing some one-liners at Steve Wynn Thank there. You, Steve, Steve, baby, <laughs> baby, Steve. I, I'll tell you one one time, you, you know, when you, uh, I think there's the only time I ever saw an owner of a restaurant get mad. I, and so they would order a bottle of wine and then, you know, they always give you a little taste of the wine, you know, to see if you like it. And I think the wine that they ordered was a seven hundred dollar bottle. And Jerry tasted and goes, eh, I'm not so sure. And then Larry or someone t- and they gave back the bottle. They really didn't like it. And the owner's like, Oh man, I gotta sell this for hundred and fifty dollars a glass now instead of the whole bottle here. And uh but you know, because of the group and because uh, you know, they they were very kind about it. But that was um that was fun. Wow. You, um, you know, one another story I love in the book is the, uh, the Carson, when you kind of told off the booker uh, before you actually got on Carson, when he was, you know, he kind of passed on you, you let him know how you felt about that. And then you eventually, you know, appeared so many times on Carson. Um, what can you tell us about that? Just, you know, obviously, you know, it, it's the end of our, you know, Carson, we saw him towards the end there, but I know he was obviously, if, if Carson liked you back then, you know, it was it, right? So, that was it. Um, yeah, um, I'm curious what, what that was like, just being able to do Carson that many times and, and, and just, right. uh, you know. So, Jerry and I used to have a joke about this. Um, probably the most frightened I'd ever been, I'd, I'd be less frightened to have brain surgery. Than I was to do my first Tonight Show. It was singly the most frightening moment of my life. And it was the same for Jerry. And we both joked about like, well, you know, if it didn't work out, we would just jump on Carson's desk and kick him in the head. You know, because you got to make some sort of splash here. You just got to just, you know, because you know your career is over. So you might as well go out with a big bang. And uh, luckily, my my first set was. So what happened with me was. um Jim McCauley, who is the talent coordinator, came to see me at the comic strip. And you do five minutes. And there were about nine or ten comedians on that he would watch. And at the end of the night, you're sitting in the bar, and he comes down, and he's talking to this one comedian, and it's another comedian, and he doesn't talk to me. And by the way, I had a standing ovation. In five minutes, I got a standing ovation, which is unbelievable, almost impossible. So I follow him outside. I had an anger problem at the time. And... uh, (laughs) The worst thing to do is get into a confrontation with somebody who can make your career and get angry at them. So I walked outside, Jim, what do you think? He goes, oh, it's a funny set, Mark. I said, well, thank you. But what do you think? I got a standing ovation. He goes, yeah, I know. Yeah. But uh, I don't know, maybe some other time. I said, Jim, come on, standing ovation. And he said, listen, you're not right for Johnny. You're not Johnny's type of comedian. And I'm buying for Johnny. And I wish there was something I could do, but I can't. 
I said, Jim, I got a standing ovation. He said, I'm not. He turns and walks away. And I scream, F you, Adam. <laughs> and I, I said the word. And then, and then he turns around, what? And I screamed it again. And he looks at me and goes, you will never, ever do the Tonight Show as long as you live. And he left. And I thought my career was completely in a ditch and buried. Seven years later, I'm in San Francisco at a club and Jim comes walking in. And I had seen him around the clubs in L.A. And we would say hello to each other, but never asked him about doing the Tonight Show. Because, you know, once you tell a guy to go F himself twice, there's a good chance you're not going to work for him. <laughs> a good chance. So Jim comes in and goes, hey, Mark, how are you? I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm, I came to see your opening act. I hear he's funny. I said, yeah, he is a funny guy. And he said, listen, do you mind if I stick around and watch you? Because I have nothing to do tonight. I said, sure. I go up. I do an hour. I get off stage. He, he looks at me and goes, man, you've gotten good. You got the show if you want it. I wow. said, really? He said, yeah, you got the show. He said, you go on two weeks from Friday. Come to my office Monday. We'll go over. We'll, we'll, we'll tighten the routine I want you to do. Went to his office. We tightened the thing. I went that next Friday, uh, two weeks from then. Did an, this incredible set. And this is the caveat. When Carson retired, right before he retired, he put together something called the Ultimate Johnny Carson Collection. And he picked his six or seven favorite first shots of comedians. And mine was one of those shots. So from a guy who was told you will never do the show as long as you live, I became one of Johnny's favorites there. And Johnny was um, so so kind to me. What? Unbelievable. I mean, yeah. you could die and go to heaven on that one, right? Yeah. Um, at the Tonight Show, you would go with other comedians and they would stand, I think they probably told you, in a little archway behind the cameras and watch your set. And, uh, you know, standing behind that curtain. And you hear Doc Severinsen's band, boom, 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 boom. And Johnny introducing you. You come out and like, man. And by the way, when you did that show, my I was dating a woman who I'm married to now. And her mother didn't really want her to marry a stand-up comedian. You know, stand-up comedian. <laughs> then when I did this night show, she started telling everyone <laughs> that her daughter was going to marry a stand-up comedian so that's what johnny did he legitimized you and families incredible and that was it i mean that was the goal like you said when you were younger you everyone just wanted to be funny and the goal was essentially the tonight show right yeah and so, then and, and then when you did a spot you would go to the improv that night and all the comics there they would turn the tv on and you'd get 20 people 20 comics all standing around the tv cheering you on it was a beautiful thing. You know, the, re the replay at 1130, the comics would go and watch you and then clap for you at the end. Or they would put out banners sometimes. You know, congratulations on your Tonight Show. Is there an equivalent to that today, Mark, or no? Podcasts. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're both in the same boat there. Seriously, so, you know, yeah. um, you know, you do some of these shows like Jimmy Kimmel or these other shows and they, you know, they got it. They don't have 20 million people like Carson had. And uh, I don't know that they're coming out to see as much. It's, it's all digital. So how's a guy like you, born in the Bronx, when did you know you had it? Like that, you know, who, who'd you make laugh? And obviously, you know, you went into the circuit in your early 20s. But early on in the Bronx, 
how did you know you were funny? How did you know this was a path you were going to take? So, good question. Um, I did not know until I was 12 years old. I'll tell you that story. <clears throat> so I was considered incredibly annoying. Not funny, annoying. They, people would say to me, you know, Mark, you're the most annoying person I've ever met in my life. I've never met anybody more annoying than you. And they would ask me questions. Why, why are you so annoying? And then they would say things like, you live to annoy me. Is that, is, is that, do you get a thrill? I used to annoy bus drivers. I would uh, wait for a bus. And when the bus driver would open the door, I would just stare at him. I wouldn't get on. And he'd look <laughs> at me and go, are you getting on? I would just stare at him. And then when he closed the door, because it was New York, there's traffic, I would run and beat him to the next stop. And when he opened the door, I'd be standing there. <laughs> and the guy <laughs> would say to me, <laughs> the guy would look at me and go, you are so annoying. He didn't even know me, but he knew I was annoying. So I had a fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Goldman, may she rot in hell. And um, she was actually a nice lady, but <laughs> didn't know how to deal with future comedians. And she actually called me up to the front of the class one time and she said, Mark, come, come, this is fifth grade. She goes, come up to the front of the class. I want the class to see exactly what an idiot looks like. And I went up there and I just raised my hand. So, you know, like, like, you know, like I'm a champion. I, I did yeah. this and the kids started laughing and uh, it felt good. So I got some laughs and then cut to, I'm 12 years old, living in Forest Hills with my parents and my parents, I'm an only child. My parents took me to a nightclub and, um, Jimmy Roselli was the opening, it was the headliner. He was an Italian singer. And opening the show was Rodney Dangerfield. 12 years old. I know nothing. I've never seen a comedian. Rodney comes out, destroys the crowd. I'm looking at my parents, laughing their heads off. And I, I had an epiphany. I said, that's it. I'm going to be a comedian. I don't even know what it is. <clears throat> but whatever this guy just did, I'm going to do my own version of this one day. And Rodney was my lightning rod then and later on i got to be friends with him and i told my parents i'm gonna be a comedian and you when you're 12 you know you tell your parents you're gonna be a cowboy you're gonna be a fireman when i was 18 17 i started going to the clubs with phony id 16 17 watching comedians like ed bluestone elaine boozler andy kaufman and ed bluestone this guy comedian one liner great guy i said to him how do you become a comedian ed he goes all right this is what you do Write original material, memorize it, and go find an audience to talk, tell it to, and not your parents or your friends. And, and then you get a tape recorder and tape every show because the tape is the only thing that will not lie to you. Your mother will lie, your father will lie, your sister, your brother, your wife, your kids, they'll all say you're funny. Or, but the tape recorder, that you'll know if they're laughing or not. And uh, that was it. 18 years old, I started doing it. I had uh, stage fright. I quit for five years. I was too scared to do it. At 23, I went back, and uh, I've not stopped since. Wow, incredible. Just making people laugh still all these years later, too. The, sa the same, like, the, the fact that it was Rodney that got you started, and then you ended up being, you know, friends later on in life. Well, you know, it, it, it had a, I, I bookended it because Rodney was the guy that got me started when I was 12, when I was watching him. And I've told him that story. And then his wife called me the day before he died at UCLA. And she said, Mark, Rodney's going to probably be gone by tomorrow. If you want to go and say goodbye to him, you can. And I went up there and he was, kind of, you know, he's in a coma. And Rodney was so funny. He was actually in a funny coma. 
you know, it's like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it sounded like Rodney. And he's uh, flashing his eyes and all that. And there's a Jewish prayer called the Shema. And it's supposed to be the last thing you say before, if you, if you have the opportunity before you, if you know you're going to die. And I took Rodney's hand and I did the prayer with him. And then he passed the next day. So he got me started. And then I had the opportunity to walk him out the door at the end. Wow. He, uh, we have, obviously he met a, met a lot to you and man, he was a, he was a funny, funny guy and clearly rubbed off on you. Was there, just, you know, back to that beginning, you said you're 18, you, you quit for five years and then you came back and I don't know, but was it stage fright? Was it, it sounds like this new collection of friends you got at age 23 to 24, Riser, Jerry, you name it, kind of helped build that confidence. Was, was that a missing piece early on, do you think? Or was it just you weren't ready? So, good question. We weren't ready. When, when Jim McCauley from Tonight Show passed on me, he was a thousand percent right. And I didn't know it at the time. That's why I told him what I told him. I was not ready. And I wasn't right for Johnny at that time. But I, you know, you, your ego, you think you are. And you think you know better. So he was right. And that seven years seasoned me. Um, yeah. Your, the, your friend support, you know, listen, when you got the top comedians, you know, at the clubs and in the country telling you and laughing at you and telling you how funny you are and including you and in everything, it does build some confidence. But I've always struggled with some stage fright. It's something that uh, I've never been able to completely conquer and I probably never will. So it's a combination of a little bit of fear and anxiety, which actually makes you work a little harder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've had a great career, clearly, writing. Uh, Riser put you on My Two Dads. and uh, I wrote on that about you. And about you. You know, we got to ask, did Jerry, did you ever uh, yeah. ever ask Jerry to come on or ever, like, give you an audition or, or an opportunity to be on that show? No. I never, you know, I never asked him about that. Um, if he needed me and he's called me many times about stuff. I knew that he would, but um, I didn't want to do that. And that was okay. But what Jerry did do for me is when I've had ideas and I've gone to him, he's never turned me down. Um, I had a, I had a pilot <clears throat> that I was working on. I pitched it to him. I told him about it. And he brought me into NBC to Warren Littlefield. And he came into the meeting with me and Warren was the president of NBC and they bought my show. It didn't, it didn't, Go, which happens to ninety nine percent of the shows, but uh, Jerry worked on it with me, and he brought me in for the meeting with NBC. And you can't ask for more than that. The two books I wrote, Jerry did the forward to both books. Um, you know, taking me around the world, everywhere. I trust his. Um, I, you know, I, I just. I know that he's doing the right thing for what he needs to do. And I, I don't, I don't push him on it. Um, and to tell you the truth, I, I don't know, you know what, if, if I had done a couple of those shows, it might've helped my career somewhat. I'm sure it would have, but look at me, I'm, I'm touring now in the last 20 years with Jerry and there's only two or three of us doing that. So if I was on the show and didn't continue as a stand up, he knew that my heart, you see, he's a true stand up. Mm. This is what he loves. And he knew my heart's always been in this because while he did his show, you know, for all those years, I um, continued on the road. 
So he knew I was the real deal with that. And I wasn't just a guy that got in it to get a show or to be famous. I did it because I, because we want to entertain people and make them feel better. Yeah. And, and I know that he's, I've heard him talk about that in the past too around. And it sounds like you have, you share this with him is that the respect for the craft and for the ones that came before you, you mentioned Dangerfield. I know you had talked about uh, Milton Berle and Jackie Mason um, in your book as well. So I think you and Jerry share that, right? That kind of respect for, totally. for the craft itself. And yeah, we went to see everybody. I went to see, uh, we went to see George Burns upstate New York together. Mm. George was in his nineties and, uh, yeah, I mean, this is what we do. I went to see Alan King, Jackie Mason, Buddy Hackett, Don Rickles. I think I went backstage with uh, Jerry to meet Don Rickles in Vegas once. Yeah, I mean, these were our mentors. These are the people we followed and uh, loved, you know. In what fact, I, I was at, um, I, I didn't have time today, but I was at... Um, Mount Sinai, I went to a funeral this morning of a, a friend, and that's where Don Rickles is buried in the uh, Mount Sinai. And when I go to these places and I know there's a comedian, I go to see them. I went to where Lenny Bruce is buried. You know, want to thank those guys. Yeah. You know, by the course. way, there's not as many Jewish people doing stand-up as there used to be. You know, in the 60s and 70s, it was almost 85% of the stand-up comedians were Jewish. And they, I believe, to a great extent, legitimize Jews in the United States because there's a lot of people in the country that never met a Jew. You know, there's not many of us. You know, you, with all the press we get, you think there's a billion of us like Chinese, but there's a very small amount, 0.2% of the population. But these people in the Midwest and, you know, or down south, they never met a Jew and they would watch The Tonight Show. And here comes this Jewish guy, Alan King, and they're sitting there. And they're laughing their heads off. They're going, you know, these Jews are funny people. I like these Jews. One after another, Jewish comedian every night is going to another home of, of someone who's never met one of us. And they, and they came to adore us. Yeah, that's true. The, the the sense of humor is definitely there and uh, and apparent. They said that about Seinfeld, the show, when it first came out. That was one of the things. Is it going to be too Jewish? But it turned out it's not, right? That's funny. Funny's funny. And that's the kind of funny humor that I think uh, all everyone gets, right? Like like you totally. said. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We're not, uh, we've discussed this many times. Jerry and I and Paul, and uh, we're not teachers. We're not, we're not there to lecture we don't do politics. We just do funny observations, talk about our families, our wives, our kids, our parents. And uh, the most relatable is the most universal. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's that's what made Seinfeld the show so great. That's what makes your comedy. I, you know, we've watched you know many of your your uh, your specials and your bits. It's very relatable. Is, is what's funny. People like to to feel like you know they can laugh at it right it's not uh it's so not about how smart we are it's yeah. not about how smart we are that we, we don't try to be smarter than anybody in the audience uh we, we don't talk down to them either what would what would surprise our audience obviously without you know nothing nothing private or obviously that but just generally speaking jerry you know what would surprise our audience from, from all the times you spent time with jerry and all the talks and everything like that what might an audience like be surprised by to know about Jerry that was sort of like, you know, you might not get that from the show or even from his comedy without divulging, obviously, private stuff. Just generally speaking, like he seems just from your book, I, you can ascertain his 
his loyalty and his friendship. And you sure. mentioned that the forward and the car he gave you and that kind of stuff. But what just about just his everyday life that we would think, Oh, Jerry's just, you know, he's just, he's just a guy from Long Island like anyone else. Right. But he got to the top and he still continues to, to be right. that, that humble guy. So, yeah, well, there's, there's not a lot to divulge, you know, about him because he's again, not a guy that gets into trouble. Um, he's an incredibly giving guy. I, you know, I, I know organizations and, uh, know things he's had set up to to help things like fathers you know people you know reunite people with their families and uh you know put families back together stuff like that him and his wife big givers stuff like that it's it's incredible and i've seen him help people all the time um you know we've we've gone to israel together twice if you want to go to israel nothing better than flying with jerry Say that at my own bedroom on the plane. You know, I'm laying there. I'm thinking, I barely got out of high school, and here I am lying in, the, in my own bedroom at 55,000 feet, going to Israel to do some shows to 17,000 people. So it was, it was quite extraordinary. I'll tell you one thing we had one night. Um, I think it was Minneapolis. It's midnight. Finished the second show, and we were going to take off, and it was winter time. Minneapolis is like freezing and there's a little bit of snow blowing around and ice. And it's just, so we're in the, we're in the jet and there's three of us there and Jerry's sitting facing the, the pilots and I'm sitting facing and Kevin is facing me, you know, the opposite way. And the pilot uh, starts taking off these two guys. And all of a sudden as we're about to take off, he aborts the, the flight and comes back down and the, plane is spinning around on the on the runway there a little bit and it takes about 10 minutes the pilot comes back and says i'm really sorry about that the whole dashboard i saw it light up red so the pilot goes guys i'm really sorry about that the dashboard lit up red it said we had engine problems i had no choice but to board the flight and then the pilot says but i don't think it's really engine problems i think it's a malfunction of the bulb or something, you know, like on the dashboard. I don't think we actually have a problem. And I'm going to leave it up to you if you want to take off. Wow. So you look at Jerry and he goes, I goes, what do you think, Jerry? Jerry goes, let's do it. (laughs) Right. Then they look at Kevin. What do you want to do? He goes, go for it. And you've never felt peer pressure like this in your entire life. Jerry's looking at me. Kevin's looking at me. And I'm sweating bullets like I'm going to, I, I don't know, you know. And Jerry goes, he goes, listen, if you don't want to come now, fine with us. Just take a, you know, a regular commercial flight in the morning and meet us there. It's only an hour flight, you know, you know, on the thing, you know, pay for it, you know, no sweat. So I said, uh, ah, I'll go. <laughs> so we buckle in and I'm nervous. And when I'm nervous, probably like you, you start chat- chattering a little, uh, you know, you start talking. Yeah. So I said to Jerry. Let me ask you, how long is this flight? Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get in my head how long it is. He goes, don't worry, no more than a minute and a half, <laughs> which means we're going down right away. And I, I laughed so hard when he said that. It, 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 it let the air out of the balloon. I felt good about it. And uh, we took off, and thank God everything worked out. But that was uh, quite the story. That happened like... That twenty years ago, eighteen years ago, something like that. Wow. Well, listen, humor humor heals many wounds and, and many nerves. So that's that's great to hear. And you know, you mentioned Jerry's such a giver, but you know, <clears throat> we can't thank you enough. We think you're a great giver 
you know, your you comedy. Know, by the way, yeah. Do you, you got another minute? Do you know about yeah. the funniest? Do you know about the funniest men in America? About funniest men? Yeah. No, so, yeah. So here it is. Um, we're all new comics. It's New Year's Eve. None of us have any work except hanging out at the comic strip. You know, we're not even going to get on. Maybe we're going to get on. It's like a hundred bucks. We're like our second, third year into comedy. And uh, it's New Year's Eve. And we said, why don't we all meet tomorrow for brunch, New Year's Day? And it was Jerry, Paul Reiser, Larry Miller, me, and a guy named Michael Hampton Kane, who's a comedian who passed on some years ago. And we met for lunch, brunch, New Year's Day. And we had such a good time. We said, every New Year's Day for the rest of our lives, let's do this. And we did it for 30 years, almost 30 years. We met every New Year's Day. One year we added Bill Maher to it. One year we added Steve Middleman to it. And we met and we went to the River Cafe in Brooklyn, which is under the Brooklyn Bridge. And I was living at the California when we were doing it. I called it the uh, $2,500 lunch. <laughs> I'd have to fly myself in, put myself up in a hotel, and then go to lunch. So I had to spend like three days in a hotel. And the deal was whoever made the most money for the year paid for lunch. And whoever made the second most paid for the limousine. So I never had to pay for anything. <laughs> I was never the guy that made the most money. But this was real camaraderie. Every New Year's Day, we all looked forward to it. And then we walked over the Brooklyn Bridge together. After lunch, the car dropped us at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge on the Brooklyn side. And we all walked over the bridge. And we got to the middle of the bridge. We took one more step and we decided that's where we started our new year. We got to the other side of the bridge and it was a beautiful experience, but we all ended up getting married and having kids and you just can't leave your wife and kids anymore on new year's day because you know, they want to go away together and they want to spend time with you. And so, but it did last almost 30 years. So that's that was powerful. Isn't that a beautiful wow. story about friendship? Well, yeah. I mean, you got to really feel just fulfilled, right? You know. Yeah. On yeah. all those friendships and clearly your marriage and kids. I mean, it's got to just, wow, that, that's that's a great story. And like I said, so many great stories. Get the book. Read the book. I listen the, to the podcast. I mean, Mark Schiff. the book, everyone. Why not? Lessons on comedy, courage. Come on, Tony. Give me the last one. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, chutzpah. <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> you hit a home. You are a Jew now, baby. There we go. <laughs> Welcome to the tribe. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much. This has been uh, been incredible. My pleasure, guys. I, I was thrilled that I was uh, coming on, and uh, I, I just love it, and I love to share my friendship. And I hope you guys have friends just like I have, and I hope everybody out there makes some friends and stick with them. It's a great ride. And, hey, well feel free to tell your friends to come on the podcast, Mark, anytime. <laughs> I will. I will <laughs> tell them about Mark. it. Thank you, Thanks Frank. so much. Thank you. Thank you.